our mover, Natasha, drinking Jason's blood. And uh, I think I drank Natasha's blood one time. Went over the bodies and did satanic things over the bodies. So they would tie their, the men down, drink their blood, and other juices from the, them. Fedora Lillilid immigrated from Sweden to Miami in the 1980s. This is where he met his future wife, Delfina, whom he married in 1989. Delfina was born in New Jersey and was the daughter of Honduran immigrants. After the birth of their daughter, Tabitha, they moved to Knoxville, Tennessee. Fedora wanted to escape the dangers of Miami and start a better life for his wife and child. He started working as a busboy for a local Holiday Inn, and soon the couple welcomed their second child, Peter. The family's finances were tight, but that didn't stop them from being heavily involved in their church. The Lillilids were devout Jehovah's Witnesses and decided to attend a weekend assembly in Johnson City. At the convention, the family was learning about how they could better serve God and stay faithful to their ministry. On April 6th, the convention came to an end, and the Lillilids were invited to a post-lunch with fellow attendees. However, they had to decline this offer because they had just bought some new clothes for the convention, and again, they were pretty tight on money as it was. Instead, they decided to have a picnic at a rest area on their way back home. Around 7 p.m., the family of four pulled into the rest area at mile marker 41 in Greene County, Tennessee. This is where the Lillilid family would intersect with their killers, which I'm going to refer to as the Six. If you're from a small town like me, then you know unless the county fair passes through, there's not much to do, ever. And that's exactly how it was in the tiny town of Pikeville, Kentucky, during the late 90s. It had a population of approximately 6,200 people. To cure their boredom and escape the parents, some teens would rent a room at the Collie Motel. On April 4th, 1997, the six were at this very motel in room 7. The six consists of the following people, which I'll introduce more in depth individually as we go deeper into this case. Natasha Cornett, Crystal Sturgill, Karen Howe, Jason Bryant, Dean Mullins, and Joseph Reisner. They were drinking and doing drugs, but that's not all they were doing. In this room, they were using a Ouija board, candles were burning, some were cutting themselves with razor blades, and two girls were discussing a suicide pact. The teens ended up trashing the motel room and burning quite a bit of it. Some claim that they burned 666 into the carpet. A cousin of one of the six visited the motel room herself and said the marking didn't look like the number 666 at all. What did happen, according to Karen Howe, was the drinking of blood. Karen testified that Natasha Cornett drank the blood of 14-year-old Jason Bryant, and she herself drank Natasha's blood. To the teens, it brought them closer together and made their friendships that much stronger, bonding them together by blood. To the media and prosecution, it was one of the many examples that they were terrifying occult devil worshippers. To psychologists and counselors, they were troubled teens, rebelling against society's conventional standards of existing in the world, and trying to create their own identities that coincided with being known as the outcasts. That night at the Collie Motel left a noticeable impact on the six. Friends of Natasha and Karen noticed that they were quieter than usual. The six eventually returned to the home of Natasha's mother, Madonna, she too sensed something was off with the group. They were quiet and walked into the home the same way they left, single file. Madonna described them as zombie-like. Karen Howell told Natasha's mother, quote, the end of times is coming. 
On that note, let me start off by introducing who the media dubbed as the leader of the six. 18-year-old Natasha Cornett of Betsy Lane, Kentucky. She was born into poverty and out of an affair on January 26, 1979. Her biological father was local policeman Roger Burgess, and her mother, Madonna Wallen, left her husband when Natasha was a toddler. Madonna openly admitted to hitting her daughter, but quote, never hit her with my fists, always with my hand open. She used her hands, a plastic bat, some books, and she's quote, whipped her hard, too hard at times. At one point, Crystal Sturgill had witnessed Madonna hit Natasha with a Bible. In the fifth grade, Natasha discovered her mother naked and unconscious beside an empty bottle of pills. Natasha called one of Madonna's previous boyfriends who came and took her to the hospital. Natasha was known as polite and excelled academically until the sixth grade. In seventh grade, she developed an eating disorder and dropped 30 pounds. She also started cutting herself with razor blades. Madonna had her hospitalized in Lexington, where they said she not only had an eating disorder, but she was severely manic-depressive. Doctors also said she was a danger to herself and others. They advised that she get professional help, but her mother couldn't afford it. At the age of 13, Natasha threatened to cut herself with a knife. When Madonna tried to take the knife away, Natasha threatened her. Madonna called the police and Natasha was arrested. When Natasha entered high school, she was severely bullied for dressing and acting differently from other people. She listened to heavy music and wore dark clothing every day. She was arrested for forgery at the age of 14 and was sentenced to one year of probation by juvenile court. At 15, Natasha entered a program designed to help children through school and family issues. She ended up dropping out because it, quote, wasn't doing any good. Natasha dropped out of high school in ninth grade and started using heroin, ecstasy, cocaine, PCP, crystal meth, and LSD. On her 17th birthday, she married a longtime friend, Stephen Cornett. The marriage didn't last the year, and when Stephen separated from her, this made Natasha's mental health drastically decline. Afterwards, Natasha moved to New Orleans for a short period of time with a friend. While there, she was gang-raped and beaten by five men. A doctor would later conclude that Natasha was, quote, clearly mentally and emotionally disturbed, and has been for a number of years. It's assumed that the six made the decision to book it to New Orleans right after they trashed and burned the Collie Motel. Natasha already had a criminal record, and Jason was on probation and on the run. Not only that, but Jason's father had called police in Kentucky and Virginia. He told them his son was kidnapped. 14-year-old Jason Bryant was born on July 18, 1982, in Hellier, Kentucky. Jason began using alcohol at the age of three and started using marijuana and other drugs at the age of nine. Jason was participating in a mental health treatment program in Pikeville, Kentucky, before running off with the six. He was also a habitual runaway and was under intensive home supervision at the time. Jason and Natasha crossed paths in early March of 1997. She picked him up on a street corner in Pikeville and took him home. Natasha and Jason used alcohol together and allegedly kissed. Natasha didn't find out Jason was 14 until the next morning. Jason was later evaluated and it was concluded that he had an IQ of 85 and the emotional skills of an 11-year-old. Before leaving for New Orleans, the six wanted to protect themselves first. They proceeded to steal two guns, a 9mm and 25 caliber, as well as some cash. One of the guns was stolen from Karen Howell's father. 
17-year-old Karen Howe was born on September 25, 1975, in Delaware, Ohio. Her mother moved her to Kentucky at the age of three. Between the ages of five and ten, Karen was sexually abused by her uncle and a cousin. After years of violent fights between her parents, they finally divorced when she was nine years old. When Karen was 13, she started cutting herself. She also attempted suicide four times, twice by slitting her wrists, and two more times by drug overdose. At the age of 16, she dropped out after transferring to three different high schools. While living with her mother, Karen started using a Ouija board, hearing voices, and automatic writing. Automatic writing is a claimed psychic ability allowing a person to produce written words without consciously writing them. Karen's mother discovered these writings and gave them to two different ministers, who attempted to quote, cast out her demons. Karen also participated in witchcraft, and claimed she made two love spells to get two boys to date her. By the age of 15, Karen was using alcohol, LSD, PCP, and cocaine. Karen's IQ is 78, and she had no prior criminal activity. The six began their road trip the same day as the Lily Lid family. They all piled into Joseph Reisner's blue Chevy Citation and held their breath. There was no way in hell they were making it the 11 plus hours to New Orleans. Although the car was falling apart, Joseph still managed to go well above the speed limit. The six were pulled over in Gate City, Virginia by a state trooper. They were given a ticket for going 74 and a 55 and continued on their journey overall unscathed. The groups traveled solely relied on Joseph's blue Chevy Citation, which they decided they were going to have to abandon at some point. Joseph Reisner was born October 13, 1976, in Hazard, Kentucky. Joseph never knew his biological father and took the last name of his stepfather. In 1986, his family moved to Georgia. Two years later, his mother Mary and stepfather separated. Mary and Joseph moved back to Kentucky at the age of 14, where he became active in church. Joseph used marijuana for the first time at the age of 10 and LSD at 11. At the age of 12, he claimed he had sexual relationships with two of his babysitters. This is how the court records describe the relationship, but today we would categorize this as sexual abuse. In 1993, his mother married Larry Castle, and the family regularly smoked marijuana together. At the age of 18, Joseph started junior year at Betsy Lane High School. Joseph dated Natasha Cornett for a brief time, and afterwards they remained friends. In early 1995, Joseph started dating Natasha's best friend, Karen Howe. He dropped out of school and in June of 1995 joined the army. He was discharged after testing positive for marijuana. In 1996, he earned his GED and started at Mayo Regional Technology Center the same year. Joseph was on course to graduate, but instead chose to run off with the group to New Orleans. As the group traveled through Greene County, Tennessee on I-81, Karen announced that she had to use the restroom. The six pulled into the closest rest area they could find, mile marker 41, the same as the Lily Lid family. At the rest stop, the Lily Lids briefly chatted with the Sinclair family, who was also traveling back from the religious conference. Little did the Sinclairs know, this would be the last time they would see the Lily Lids alive. The Sinclairs eventually drove away, leaving behind a scene they would read in the paper days later. The six pulled into the parking lot, unaware of the events about to unfold. Natasha and Karen, 
who had been sharing the front passenger seat, got out and entered the rest area. The rest of the six waited around and talked about potentially hot-wiring a car in order to change vehicles. Not only was the Chevy on its last leg, but the six had stolen cash, guns, and had already left a bread trail with a speeding ticket in Virginia. They needed a vehicle that could fit all six of them, fast. As the two girls exited the rest area, Vidar walked up to them holding his son Peter. He asked them how they were doing, and then jumped into proselytizing the teens, handing them a religious pamphlet. There's speculation that Vidar approached the teens specifically because of their all-black clothing and gothic appearance. Most likely, he looked at them and saw troubled, impressionable teens, the perfect group to proselytize after learning how to better serve God. Vidar asked Natasha if she believed in God. She responded, quote, No, he never answered my prayers when I was little. This would be a challenge for Vidar, but he was faithful to his religion and keen on spreading his message. He invited the girls to a nearby picnic table. Joseph Reisner and Jason Bryant headed towards the picnic table as well, probably to see why the girls were talking to a stranger, like they had all the time in the world. Joseph had seen the Lily Lid family in the parking lot earlier, and knew the van belonged to them. That's when an idea popped into his head. He walked back to the Chevy to relay his idea to Dean Mullins and Crystal Sturgill. Joseph said, quote, We're going to do something. Just be ready and grabbed the 9mm handgun. He approached Vidar and the other group members while scanning the area for potential witnesses. When the coast was clear, he said, quote, I'm sorry about this. Everybody just be quiet and nothing's going to happen to you. All we need is the van. Vidar pleaded with the six, offered up his wallet and keys, and begged them to leave him and his family at the rest area. They could have the van. Joseph reiterated that they were taking the van and the whole family had to come along but nobody was going to get hurt. Dean and Crystal were close behind in the Chevy as Vidar pulled out of the rest area. 19-year-old Edward Dean Mullins was born January 26, 1978, in Harold, Kentucky. Like the rest of the six, excluding Jason, Dean attended Betsy Lane High School, dropping out his senior year. Dean worked at a grocery store for a short period and has no criminal history. Dean had attended church regularly, until befriending Natasha Cornett. After being involved with her, he also broke up with his girlfriend and had negative changes in behavior, according to relatives. His parents tried to stop him, but he eventually moved in with Natasha and they had planned on getting married. In the passenger seat beside him was 18-year-old Crystal Sturgill, born March 13, 1979 in Harold, Kentucky. Crystal was an above-average student until she entered high school and began using drugs. She received a 28 on her ACT and planned on majoring in child psychology in college. The only trouble Crystal got into prior to the Lily Lid family was smoking in a school locker room and fighting a girl that had bullied her younger brother. In December of 1996, Crystal came out about the sexual abuse of her stepfather, which started at the age of four. He started raping Crystal at the age of 13, but stopped once she began dating a boy. Her stepfather admitted to the abuse and pleaded guilty to the charges brought against him. Even after admitting to the abuse, Crystal's mother and many other relatives refused to believe he had sexually abused her. Crystal lived in 13 different households after coming forward about the abuse. The final home Crystal moved into was Natasha's, even though their relationship wasn't well off. 
In the passenger seat of the Lilylid family's van, Joseph gripped the 9mm, making sure to keep it in Vidar's peripheral. He reassured the family, quote, Everyone stay calm. We're just going to take a little ride and no one will get hurt. Behind them in the middle seat was Jason, Natasha, Karen, and Peter Lilylid strapped into his car seat. Jason had the other weapon, a 25 caliber pistol. In the very back, Delphina started singing to her daughter, Tabitha. Jason shouted, quote, you'd better shut up. Tabitha was noticeably scared of the teens, so Karen turned around and smiled at her. In response, Tabitha opened her tiny palm and presented she and Natasha some Hershey kisses. The Lilylid family and the six continued down the interstate a couple miles and took the first exit. Vidar drove another mile and was then told to turn onto Payne Hollow Road. After a few hundred yards, Vidar asked if this was a good place to stop, and Joseph said it was. The Lilylid family gathered by the side of the road, tightly holding their children, and their faith that God would protect them from what was about to come. Joseph and Jason walked away from the group to discuss their options. Just before they did, Natasha told Jason to promise her that he wouldn't hurt the children. Natasha then approached Vidar and Delphina. She said, quote, I can't stop this. Just let me have the children so they won't get hurt. According to Karen Howell, Vidar stated, quote, If we die, they'll be dead too. Yards away, Jason asked Joseph, quote, What do you think we should do? Do you think we should let them go? Or do you think we should kill them? Joseph responded, quote, I don't know, man. What do you think we should do? Jason's response was, quote, I think we should kill them. Vidar made one last attempt to save his and his family's life. He took out his wallet and said, quote, Here, take my wallet, take the van, just please don't hurt us. Delphina claimed she couldn't remember their faces anyways, because all teens dress alike these days. What unfolds next is still in dispute, two decades later. Interviews between Joseph Risner, Natasha Cornett, Karen Howell, Dean Mullins, and Crystal Sturgill only have minor discrepancies. Five of the six claim the following. Jason took control of the situation once the van came to a halt. Joseph handed his gun to Natasha, who in turn placed the gun on the floor of the van. Joseph said he couldn't continue. Jason ordered the Lilylids to stand in front of a ditch and raised his 25 caliber gun to Vidar. The Lilylids assured the six they wouldn't call authorities, but Jason refused to listen. Karen and Natasha started pleading with Jason to let the family go. Jason allegedly promised the girls he wouldn't hurt the children, so they returned to the van where Joseph was standing. Mark Gabby, an independent contractor, was nearby the scene, within earshot. Mark was inspecting a piece of land he was about to build a water tank on. He heard a gunshot to his right. His immediate thought was that someone was hunting nearby. It was common in that area. A pause and then the eerie sound of what he described as, quote, like children on a playground. Was it the Lilylid children screaming, or was it the six? If it was the six, like the prosecution claimed, were they laughing and screeching with enjoyment, or were they in shock that someone was just shot? Or maybe it was Tabitha, who had just witnessed her father being shot in the head. Forensic pathologist Dr. Cleland Blake testified that Vidara Lilylid was shot a total of six times, 
The first shot came from a 9mm. The bullet entered his right eye and exited below his right temple. Dr. Blake believes at this point he would have lost consciousness and fell to the ground onto his back. Vidar was shot three times in the upper right side of his chest. The wounds formed an equilateral triangle. Two more bullet wounds were located under Vidar's left nipple. One was consistent with the 9mm, but the other wound just above it was from the other gun, the 25 caliber pistol. The second victim was Delfina, who was shot a total of eight times. The first two shots shattered the femur in her left thigh and a bone in her left arm. This severe pain would have caused her to collapse immediately. While on her back, she was shot an additional three times in the left side of her abdomen. It formed a triangular pattern similar to that on her husband. Three more bullets pierced her body. One was retrieved later from the center of her liver. Two of the eight bullets were from a 25 caliber pistol. The rest came from the 9mm. Delfina didn't immediately die. She would have suffered as long as 25 minutes after the first shot. Long enough to see her children gunned down by her side. Six-year-old Tabitha was shot once in the head with the 25. The bullet entered the left side of her skull and exited behind her right ear. She suffered an immediate brain death. Two-year-old Peter was shot twice, most likely with the 25. One bullet entered behind his right ear and exited next to his right eye. The second shot entered his back and exited his chest. Peter suffered a contusion to his right lung and severe damage to his right eye. The group claimed that after Jason shot them all with the 25, he went back to the van for the other gun and said, quote, They're still fucking alive. Jason then walked back and finished the family off with a 9mm. After the murders, Joseph Reisner claimed that he got into the van, closed the door, and began to cry. He apparently said to himself, They're all dead. Another source claims that after the murders, Joseph and Jason hopped into the van laughing together. Jason then tried to turn the radio on and said, I've got to hear some Marilyn Manson, but the stereo didn't work. Jason Bryant had an entirely different story. He claimed that Joseph Reisner and Dean Mullins committed the murders, and that he had to close his eyes because he couldn't bear to watch. Two 911 calls were immediately placed, reporting gunfire near Payne Hollow Road. Between 8.30 and 9 p.m., Green County Deputy Jeff Morgan pulled up to the blue Chevy Citation. The headlights were still on, but the keys and license plate were gone. The car was stuck on top of a stump, partially in the muddy ditch. Sergeant Frank Waddle was with him, and took notice of the pile of bodies first. Vidar and Delfino were deceased. Their legs were partially stretched into the road, and tire marks were pressed into their clothing. As Joseph Reisner had driven away from the scene with the group, he had run over Vidar and Delfina's legs. The prosecution claimed this was purposeful, while Joseph claimed it was because he had never driven a van before and had to make a wide U-turn to leave the scene. Delfina most likely would have been alive when that occurred. Tabitha was stretched across her father's midsection, unconscious and twitching. Peter lay on his mother's abdomen, he wasn't moving and his face was buried in the mud. Deputy Morgan searched for signs of life and touched the little boy's shoulder. Morgan said, quote, When I touched the little boy, he started crying. 
I held him and just stayed there with him in the ditch until the ambulance arrived. I'm sure it was only a matter of minutes, but it seemed like it took forever for them to get there. What do you say to a child that's shot full of holes? I just tried to tell him, nobody's gonna hurt you, you're gonna be okay. Prosecutors argued later that the bodies had been arranged into a cross. This would fit into their concept that the murders were demonic and ritualistic in nature. Deputy Morgan claimed, quote, My opinion is they probably didn't fall that way. It didn't look natural. Peter and Tabitha were life-flighted to a hospital in Knoxville. Tabitha lived for another day on life support, until her uncle decided to let her go and donate her organs. Peter was in critical condition, but doctors managed to stabilize him and save his life. On his 11th day in the hospital, his damaged eye was removed, and on the 17th day, he was released to a local rehabilitation center. If the six hadn't left their car behind, there's a possibility that they may have never been caught. It was the only thing that linked them to the scene. The vehicle identification number was traced back to its original owner, Mary Castle, the mother of Joseph Reisner. Mary told authorities that she hadn't seen her son in two days, and she had no idea where he was. All she knew was that he was with five other teens, and they were missing too. As the group fled the scene, Jason brought up the fact that they couldn't go to New Orleans now. They, or he, had just killed a family, and Natasha's mother knew that's where the teens were headed. So they decided to change their destination to Mexico. Jason allegedly told the group if they made it to Mexico, they'd be free from U.S. authorities. Joseph Reisner later testified this, quote, I had no doubt when we got to the border we were going to get busted. I mean, there was no doubt in my mind. And I mean, we needed to be. An attorney responded to this by asking why. Joseph then said this, referring to Jason Bryant. Quote, Because of that sick little bastard and what he done. I mean, we needed to be. Somebody needed to catch us. The six ended up making it through the border of Mexico, but not very far into the country. At some point while in Mexico, Jason was shot in the hand and leg. Jason later testified that Joseph asked him to take the blame because he was a juvenile, and when he hesitated to respond, Joseph shot him. The other group members claim that Jason shot himself. They tried to get through a checkpoint, but were not only turned around, but escorted back to the U.S.-Mexico border. On April 8th, around 5 p.m., the six arrived at the entrance back into the United States, near Douglas, Arizona. U.S. Customs Inspector Mark Springer typed in the tag number of the van, like he did with every vehicle entering the U.S. According to some reports, the system, however, hadn't been working all day, until the six pulled up. Berkeley Bell, the district attorney general at the time, said it was like the hand of God coming down. But according to Mark, who was interviewed later, the system had been on and off all day. It wasn't a miracle. It was a coincidence. 
A miracle would have stopped the six before they killed nearly every member of the Lilylid family. When Mark typed in the tag number, their warrants immediately popped up. The six were wanted for a triple homicide. They were armed, dangerous, and needed to be held for questioning. The six were ordered out of the van. Mark Springer asked Joseph who the vehicle belonged to, and he claimed that he didn't know. The van was searched, and items belonging to the Lilylid family were discovered. According to some reports, some of the teens were holding on to the family's belongings as trophies. One source claimed Natasha was in possession of Tabitha's social security card. Another source claimed she had a photo of Tabitha that Vidar had taken. On the back, he had written, Summer 1995, My Favorite Girl. Karen had a Hello Kitty diary lock that had belonged to Tabitha, and Crystal had Delphina's house keys. If all of that evidence wasn't incriminating enough, the murder weapons were also found. The six were arrested and extradited back to Greene County, Tennessee, to stand trial. All across Tennessee, people were outraged, horrified, and terrified about the murders. One convenience store owner in Knox County hung a noose for each of the six in front of his store. District Attorney Berkeley Bell announced he would be seeking the death penalty for all four adults. The town was so small it didn't have the funds to try each of the six separately. The judge said that six different trials would bankrupt the county. The defense attorneys for each of the teens argued that it wasn't fair. Because they were being tried together, the attorneys had to not only defend their own client, but the rest of the group, which was impossible because one or more of the teens definitely killed the Lilylid family. However, Judge Beckner had the final say and the six had to be tried together because they murdered together. The prosecution vilified the six further by claiming the teens were satanic witches. Natasha Cornett's own defense told her to tell the court that she was, quote, the daughter of Satan. The news couldn't have asked for a better headline. The prosecution painted the six as demonic souls that killed the Lilylids as part of a ritual. A lot of people believe this is true, and a whole lot of other people think it was a crime of opportunity. The county prepared for the trial for months, but the jury never got to decide the fate of the six. On February 20th, 1998, Bell offered the teens a plea deal. They all had to take the deal, or Bell would go forward with trying for the death penalty. In exchange for pleading guilty, the six would have to spend the rest of their lives in prison. They took the deal. Natasha Cornett, Karen Howell, Crystal Sturgill, Joseph Reisner, Jason Bryant, and Dean Mullins all received the same sentence. Three consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. And an additional 25 years for the attempted murder of two-year-old Peter. Vidar and his son Peter had both been shot in the right eye. Vidar and Delphina both had bullet wounds that formed a triangle. Some believe that both of these elements referred to Satanism. Specifically, they believed that the triangles were actually pentagrams, a symbol of Satanism. 
Berkeley Bell is still holding on to this theory of Satanism as the motive of the Lily Lid murders. In 2017, this is what he said, reflecting back on the case. Quote, It was the highlight of my career as a prosecutor. The whole thing was driven by evil, almost a supernatural evil. That sense of evil just permeated the whole thing from start to finish. It infused the defendants, and it empowered them. That's what I believed then, and my opinion has not changed. We don't know everything that happened that night. I'd like to know. They've never told the whole story. They've had the opportunity. I feel like we're very close. What we have are clues drawn from the circumstantial evidence. That may be all we ever know. Bell believes that the six are making a pact with the devil. He learned from a so-called occult expert that blonde-haired, blue-eyed people were targeted in these types of, quote, occult murders. He stated that this murder was ritualistic, and even the bodies of the deceased were displayed in the shape of a cross. The lead detective on the case, John Hafine, doesn't believe the theory of Satanism as a motive. He believes the six were just on the run and needed what the Lily Lids had, a vehicle with a lot more legroom and a lot more miles left on it. John said, quote, A lot of people want to bring in good and evil, God and the devil. But what they wanted was the van. This family was an easy target, and they stopped there at just the right time. If the Lily Lids had just been there 15 minutes earlier, or 15 minutes later, they might be alive today. Detective Hafine also doesn't believe any of the Six's recollection of events. The forensics made it evident to Hafine that there was more than one shooter, and he believes it was Jason and Joseph. He claims the boys were full of adrenaline and testosterone and fighting to impress the girls. Helen Smith, a forensic psychologist in Knoxville, Tennessee, was able to interview Natasha Cornett and Crystal Sturgill shortly after their sentences. Helen specializes in violent children and adults. She included this interview in an analysis of the girls in her book, The Scarred Heart. Helen used this opportunity to ask them what exactly happened the day of the murders. At that point, the media was saying a lot of different things but you wanted to know the truth. We'll never know if this is the truth, but this is how they answer the question. Natasha and her friends had all been living in her mother's trailer, and Madonna wanted them out. Madonna tried to lay down some rules to the teens, but they didn't listen and were incredibly destructive. The six decided to rent a cheap motel room to party without any parents interrupting them. This led them to the Collie Motel. Several media outlets claimed that this is where Natasha conspired to go on a killing spree, inspired by her favorite movie, Natural Born Killers. Natasha denied this. She claimed that at the motel, they had all taken part in burning down the motel room, but Karen was the only one who had been caught. The six decided that they needed to flee the state of Kentucky in order to protect Karen from the repercussions. Joseph Reisner announced to the group 
that Tennessee malls were a great place to carjack people. Like Joseph testified in court, he was the one who initiated the kidnapping with a 9mm at the rest stop in Greenville. Helen asked the girls why they didn't do anything to stop Joseph at that point. Natasha answered, quote, At that point, Jason and Joe were holding the guns on them. If we said anything, yeah, right, knowing Jason was trigger-happy, he would have shot them. At first, the man was trying to be reasonable and talk to Jason. Delfina was screaming, they're not going to do anything to us. Tabitha was crying. The boy was sitting there peaceful and happy. We got out of the van. Joseph and Jason were playing good cop, bad cop, and were trading guns back and forth. Then Joe turned to me and said, I can't do it. Both Crystal and Natasha tell Helen that it was Jason who pulled the trigger. Natasha continued, The first shot I saw went through the man's head. Everything was going so fast. Jason shot about 12 times. Jason went back to the van and got out the other gun and started shooting again. After it happened, we were in the van. Jason was bragging about how good it felt. They tried to say we shaped the bodies into an upside-down cross, but we didn't. Peter Lillilid is 26 years old now, living with his aunt in Sweden. A Facebook account called Remembering the Lillilids occasionally posts photos of him. One of their more recent posts is a letter directed to Peter himself, from Herbert Slattery III, Attorney General. It's dated January 24, 2018. It reads, quote, Dear Mr. Peter Lillylid, As you know, Karen Renee Howe lost her appeal to the Tennessee Court of Criminal Appeals. She then asked the Tennessee Supreme Court to review the Court of Criminal Appeals' decision on the case. The Tennessee Supreme Court has refused to consider this appeal, making the ruling of the Court of Criminal Appeals final. The Appellate Court Clerk's Office has issued the mandate concluding the appeal. The decision of the Court of Criminal Appeals is final, and the case is closed. Karen Howell and Crystal Sturgill are still actively trying to have their cases reopened and be released from prison before they die. In 2017, they both sent letters to the media. I'm going to read a portion of Karen's, but not the entire letter, because it is very long, but I'll make sure to link the entire thing in the description below. The following is Karen's words. I simply want the public to see that 17-year-old girl that I was, as an individual, not what the various lies pumped out by the media over the past two decades have made me out to be. There is much speculation from different sources regarding what happened on April 6th, 1997. The media ran with the initial fear and hysteria and hyped it all up so much that it has twisted the facts 
much of it due to the distortions of the truth by the DA. I want to clear some of those things up right now. We were not a cult. None of us even hung out as a group. I knew Dean Mons from school. We were cool, but we never just hung out together. Natasha and I were good friends and hung out every so often on weekends, but I stayed busy working and she had what was going on in her personal life. I dated Joe for about a month, but he lived far away and we only hung out every so often as well. I knew Crystal from school, but not well. I had only met Jason Bryant a day or two prior to the crime through Natasha. I knew he was off, and he portrayed himself to be big and bad from the jump, mostly because he had some obsession with wanting to impress Natasha. He claimed to be 17, but he was actually only 14. I had no idea that he had a violent past, and found out later that he'd pushed someone down a flight of stairs, among other things. So no, we were never a cult. There were no satanic rituals performed over the bodies. There were no moving the bodies into the shape of a cross. How the DA got that one, I'll never know. There was no taking turns shooting that poor family. All of it was done by Jason Bryant alone. When my clothes were tested at the lab, I had no gunshot residue or blood from the victims on my clothing. All lies heaped upon an already tragic happening to hype it more. Like anyone else, I have made a whole lot of mistakes in my life. The biggest and final one was when I ran away from home with five other people in April of 97. If I had known that there was going to be murder or death in any way, I would have never left home. I may have been a troubled kid, but anyone who knew me could tell you that I was no killer, especially not a child killer. But I didn't do anything about the robbery and kidnapping, which has haunted my heart and mind since that day. Joe Reisner, who was my boyfriend at the time, had a car that was in no condition to get us to our destination. After several unsuccessful attempts by Jason to hotwire a car for us, there began a discussion among them to robbing someone of theirs. Later that day at the rest stop when it actually started to happen, I just went along with it, not dreaming anyone would actually get hurt, much less killed. It was a moment in time that would forever change my life. Getting back to what happened, there is no need to rehash the kidnapping as that is one of the few things that they actually got right in the telling of the story. Joe pulled out the gun and kidnapped the family, promising that they wouldn't be hurt. As we drove along, Jason became more vocal about things, telling little Tabitha to shut the f up. When she began crying, it's after we arrived at Payne Hollow Road that the story starts to get twisted in the media telling of the tale. First off, Jason Bryant had bought a bag of weed earlier that day and had been smoking quite a bit. Pot makes certain personality types very paranoid, and Jason was one of those types and acted out of paranoia. He freaked out, and there was no reasoning with him in that state of mind. He was on probation, and it was stuck in his head that the Lily Lids would identify him and get him busted. His words. He kept repeating that over and over, his anger escalating, and he became very manic. I told everyone that we should just leave them alone and go. 
Natasha actually stood in between him and the family and tried to make him stop. But he was not listening at all. So she started trying to negotiate with him and trying to make him promise to at least spare the children. He agreed, but when she stepped away, he began shooting. After I heard the first shot, I froze. It was as if the fear completely seized me. I was there, but it felt like I left my body. It's a feeling that is so hard to describe in words. The only thing I kept saying to myself was, Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god. I totally shut down. I had done this many times before when confronted by stresses in life. It was how I coped. But this was different. It was a total shutdown. I had never witnessed this kind of violence before. Just on TV. Looking back, that would have shocked even a normal kid. But for me, it was beyond shock. The only way I can describe it is that from that point on, I felt like I was wearing a bag over my head with no holes. I couldn't process my thoughts because I had witnessed the worst nightmare imaginable. My recollection on some things is hazy due to mental block, but I do recall seeing Crystal Sturgill covering her face and Dean Mullins ducking his head down into the car, which both of them were still in. Not so long after everything happened, Jason started making threats to kill them both, all because he didn't like them. Fast forward to April 8th, two days later, Jason is sitting behind me in the van reloading the gun. I don't know why he was reloading it, but it was chilling to think who those bullets were meant for, and what would have happened had he not shot himself in the leg. Anyway, the gun went off. It was so loud and so close to me that I thought I had been shot in the back of the head. My head felt tight, my ears were numb, and all I could hear was a loud ringing. All I could do was yell that I had been shot, as I was feeling myself all over my head. The moment I realized that I hadn't been shot, I felt relief mixed with disappointment. It felt like a roller coaster ride of madness and insanity, and I wanted it to end. And that's the day it did end, when we all got arrested. Later on, when I started hearing a lot of the crazy things people and the media were saying about my case, it was a ritual satanic cult killing. They were on a rampage inspired by the movie Natural Born Killers. They kept trophies from their victims, etc. I was shocked. I wasn't some Satanist, nor a murderer. I wanted to clear my name, so I asked my attorney if I could take a lie detector test. He told me no, because those tests don't hold up in a court of law. I knew absolutely nothing about the law at the time. I was even asked at one point to testify for the state. It seemed like the DA wanted me to tell their crazy side of the story. There was just so much being tossed about that it was hard to keep up with it. While being prepped for trial, I was shown pictures of hanging nooses in an article and photos of the murdered Tabitha, which I refused to look at. I was told by my attorney that a jury wouldn't see me as an individual, but a part of a group. So they came up with a plea bargain. Being that I was a juvenile at the time and that it had no benefit for me at all, I was given three days to sign this deal or they would seek the death penalty on all four adults. Needless to say, I felt very pressured and extremely manipulated into signing that plea bargain, but I didn't want any more death going on. So I caved in to the pressure, and it was a huge mistake. I thought that even though I was pleading guilty to felony murder, that I could still maintain my own innocence. It was also confusing to me. My young, immature, and screwed up teenage mind didn't fully comprehend 
that I was truly signing my life away to die in prison. As a side note, they took me off my Xanax just a couple days before signing. I took it for my panic attacks. As I've gotten older and look back, I think they knew what they were doing when they did that. I was very much naive and easily manipulated. I was such a mess mentally and emotionally that I signed my own last name with one L on that piece of paper. That should tell you a lot. When the judge sentenced me, he told me that it wasn't my actions that brought me there, but my inactions. He told me that my making no attempts to flee or notify a police officer made me an accomplice and sentenced me to life without the possibility of parole. I wasn't sure at what point he thought that I should have felt safe enough to flee. Someone who had a gun and who I'd just witnessed murder an innocent family, and who I knew would have no problem with murdering me as well. He already spoke of killing Crystal and Dean. Especially if he was scared of being identified. For so long after, I had the what-if and if-only thoughts that would invade my mind day and night. Everything that I could recall would replay over and over in my head, as if it were some movie stuck on replay. If only I hadn't been seized by fear. If only I could have thought more rationally, etc. I didn't understand for the longest time what was wrong with me. I hated myself because of how much I would just fall to pieces under pressure. I couldn't forgive myself for a very long time. It took me years to be able to do so with some help. Anyone who knows or knew me could tell you that I was no killer, nor would I ever approve in the murder of anyone. I've never had a murderous or violent bone in my body. To suggest otherwise is silly. I was simply a screwed up kid with poor coping skills and an inability to process or deal with stressful situations. This was the most frightening and stressful situation of my 17-year-old life. So naturally, I didn't deal with it the way a healthy or normal kid might have. I say might because nobody truly knows how they would react in a situation such as that. Things happen so fast and it's all so insane. If only they'd consider that before deciding that I was some sort of evil person with murder in my heart and blood on my mind. Nothing could be further from the truth. I was 17 years old then. I am 37 now. I've grown up so much in prison. And even though it's been 20 years, my heart still weeps for the heartache that family and friends had to endure. And my tears still fall for the victims of the crime. There's not a day that goes by that I don't think about Peter Lillylid and wonder how he is doing. I've always hoped that his heart is beautiful and that the tragedy of what happened to his family didn't cast a shadow over it. I don't believe that I deserve to die in prison for murder. Karen Howell